0: Hi, and welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast. We have some exciting news we want to share with you, and that's that Rob's newest book, The Jordan River Rules, is finally here. It's been 20 years since The Red Sea Rules was published, and since then, it's helped hundreds of thousands of people through all kinds of crises. People write letters all the time to us about what they've been through. Now, he's written this book, The Jordan River Rules, to talk about how the swollen waters of the Jordan River were held back. This time, not to help the Israelites escape the enemy, but to open the path to the promised land, a path to victory. So maybe in your life, you're shifting gears. Maybe you're accelerating or slowing down. You wonder what's next? Our lives tend to move forward in different stages. So maybe you're figuring out post pandemic life, or perhaps you've just graduated, or had a baby, or a change in career, or even you've lost a loved one. The message of the Jordan River Rules is that everything in your life so far, has been God's preparation for stronger days ahead. Now it's time to move onward toward all the promises He has in store for you. You can search on Amazon for the Jordan River Rules to find the book and its accompanying study guide, which is meant for individual or group study. Or you can visit robertjmorgan.com. Use the code jrr to save 10% off the book, the study guide, or the online study videos. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan.
1: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to our series of studies and to the book of Acts, a series that I'm calling Unstoppable, because that is the nature of our gospel. I've been away for two or three weeks because August was such a difficult month that I took some time for a holiday And I just came back last night. Today, I've been uh, wondering if I shouldn't go back on holiday because of the amount of work that piled up was gone. But I wanted, before I did anything else, to get into our ongoing study of the book of Acts. And today, we're looking at chapter 20 to a sermon that the Apostle Paul preached and which I am calling 400 Words for Kingdom Workers. Sometimes I'm asked to speak to groups of ministers, and it's hard to describe how I feel. I love the thought of encouraging them, because I know that ministry is very hard, and I often need encouragement myself. And yet, speaking to ministers is rather intimidating, and I very often feel inadequate. But I'd like for you to think about this hypothetically. What if you were asked to prepare and to preach a message of instruction to all of the pastors on earth, to all of the church leaders on earth. What would you say? Suppose it was going to be streamed onto the phone and laptop of every Christian worker on earth of every group, of every denomination, and not only to those who are in vocational ministry, but to many people who are engaged in personal ministry in their local churches. What if you're asked to speak to every one of them on this planet? And now imagine that your message could also travel across time and speak to all of the Christian workers who have ever lived All of the pastors and the priests and the missionaries and the staff members and the Sunday school teachers who have ever or will ever live. What would you say? And one more thing. What if you had to do all of this using no more than 400 words, which is a very brief amount? What would you say? What advice would you give to all of the leaders of all of the churches and all of the world through all of the ages and only 400 words. Well, I know exactly what I would say. I would open my Bible to Ephesians chapter 20 and simply read the sermon of the Apostle Paul to the church workers in the city of Ephesus. So here's the background. In Acts 19, Paul spent three years or more establishing a church or a network of home churches in this great city of Ephesus. And then he left, he traveled around some, and then he came back into that area. He didn't want to actually go into the city limits of Ephesus because he was in a hurry and he knew that it would be terribly disruptive to everything. And so he stopped in the port of Miletus and sent word for the leaders of the church to join him. So he had a group of people with who, I suppose, with great excitement, traveled the 30 miles to meet him. It was, well, like a minister's retreat with the apostles Paul. He spoke to them, and on doing so, he was giving a spirit-inspired message to every church leader in Christian history, and Luke records it all in about 400 words. Now, I suspect that Paul used a good many more words than that. He may have spoken for several hours but Luke simply gives us a digest of it here in Acts chapter 20. Now, think about this. Luke is really a very remarkable writer. In the book of Acts, Luke records three missionary trips made by Paul the Apostle. We call them Paul's three missionary journeys. During each of those journeys, Paul spoke and preached and taught many times, but Luke only gives us an account of Three sermons, one from each one of these three journeys. On Paul's first missionary journey, Luke told us what Paul said to an audience of unsaved Jews. On his second missionary tour, Luke told us what he said to an audience of unsaved Gentiles. And on his third missionary journey, he told us what he had to say to the saved church, that is, to these leaders from the church in Ephesus. So we have three samples of Paul's teachings to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to the Christians. One message from each of his three journeys. Well, the one we're coming to today is the message to the Ephesian elders. So if you have your Bible, open it up with me to Acts chapter 20 and verse 18, and let's begin reading these 400 words. You know how I lived The whole time I was with you from the first day I came to the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears." Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work. We must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, this is what we call a farewell speech. The Bible contains a number of them. And here in Acts 20, we have Paul's farewell address to the Ephesians. It's emotional and personal, and it's not tightly organized or outlined. But it contains, as I delineate it and apply it to myself, seven seven different layers of truth that will be very helpful, I think, to all of us who are trying to serve the Lord. In other words, there are seven messages here. And the first one is that as we serve the Lord, we must do it with emotion. Now let's go back to verse 17. Paul said, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears. Now it's interesting that Paul talked about preaching with tears. There's a very interesting study you can do of the tears of Paul in the book of Acts and in his epistles. Here in Acts 20 verse 17, Paul said that he served the Lord with tears, and he said in verse 31, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. And in verse 37, the entire group was in tears by the end of his message, and they wept as they embraced him and kissed him. In Romans 12:15 he told us that we should weep with those who weep. And in Second Corinthians chapter two and verse four, he said that he came to the Corinthians and he wrote to them in great distress and anguish and with many tears. And he said in Philippians chapter three, verse 18, I have often told you before and now tell you even again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. And in his last known letter, he wrote to Timothy saying, I remember your tears. We think of the apostle Paul as being the apostle of tears or the weeping apostle, even as Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. Now, all of us are made with different emotional complexions. When I was a young man, my pastor, Winford Art Floyd, often wept during his sermons. And I remember him weeping, and I sometimes wonder if there's something wrong with me because I seldom do that. If I'm tired, I may get emotional and a little choked up, but we're all made differently. And for me, the takeaway from this particular passage is that ministry is and should be emotional. The old word for it is zeal. We should be zealous. We should feel very deeply about what we are doing. Younger ministers may use the words passion and passionate. But the Bible uses that wonderful word, zeal, and it says that we should be very zealous about what we do. Proverbs twenty three, seventeen says that we should always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. And Romans twelve, verse eleven says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So whether it shows up in tears or in passion, The whole idea is that we should be doing what we are doing for the Lord with all of our hearts if we lose the enthusiasm and the passion and the zeal. And yes, the tears will end up just going through the motions of teaching that class or going about that ministry or being an usher or singing in the choir or raising our children or trying to reach our grandchildren until we just burn out. We've got to serve the Lord with emotion. Secondly, We should preach with thoroughness. Paul went on to say in verse 20, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And down in verse 27, he said that he had proclaimed to them the whole counsel of God. Now, how do we do that? For those of us who are in ministry or who are teachers, either lay teachers in the church or teachers by profession, it seems to me that this should refer to teaching through the books of the Bible. And the reason is very simple. That's the way that God gave us his word. So that every word in the Bible is found within the context of a sentence. Every sentence in the Bible is found within the context of a paragraph. Every paragraph in the Bible is found within the context of a section, and every section in the Bible progresses from one to the other through books of the Bible until we have a full understanding of the unfolding of what God wants us to know. Now, I know that a lot of preachers are reluctant to do that today. They say people want topics. They don't want book studies. They want topics. But what do you think that a book study is? The Bible deals with sixty six different topics. in other words, each of the books of the Bible has its own message and its own purpose. I once had a professor who challenged us to provide a title for every book in the Bible you know most of the books of the Bible do not have a title. For example, take the book of First Thessalonians. that's not a title that title that it's that it has when we open-air Bibles, and we see it there. That's simply the designation of the original recipients. This book was written to the Thessalonians. It was the first of two books addressed to the Christians there. But what if you were an editor in a publishing company and someone gave you this brief booklet that we call First Corinthians, and it didn't have any title? So you had the contents there, but you had to study it out and come up with a title that would go on the front of this booklet to describe what the book is about. Well, I think that I would call First Thessalonians living a better life through and through. You see, that's a topic, how to live a better life and how to do it through and through or more and more. So Paul wrote this letter to tell the, uh, the Thessalonians how to grow in their newfound Christian experience. I believe that the key verse is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He said, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, and now we ask you, and we urge you and the Lord to do this more and more. And then he said down in verse 3, It is God's will that you should be sanctified. And he ended the book by saying, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Now, the word sanctify would require some explanation as you dealt with it in the text. But the broader idea is simply living a better life through and through. And who doesn't want to do that? So I believe there is tremendous power in preaching expositionally through books of the Bible while marketing the various series topically. In other words, you don't have to tell people you're going to begin a series of sermons from 1 Thessalonians. Tell them you're going to tell them how to live a better life through and through, and then as they come, you can go through that book paragraph by paragraph, and as you do so, amazing things will happen. I recently met a man and asked him how he came to Christ. He said he started attending a church where the pastor said he was going to devote a year preaching through the book of Romans. And the man told me, I received Christ when we came to chapter 3. So never hesitate to preach or to teach or to share anything that would be helpful. Preach and teach and share the whole counsel of God. Third, we have to finish the work. Now look at verse 22 going back to the book of Acts in chapter 20 because I believe this is well I recently have been impacted by this paragraph. Paul said and now compelled by the spirit I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace now i don't really have a life verse some people have a verse that maybe it's the verse that led them to christ to begin with or the verse that god spoke to them in some special way about but it has become their life verse and if they sign their signature they'll put that verse underneath it or at least the reference to it but it seems to me, as I've thought about this recently, that if I did have a life first, and maybe I'll adopt this as mine, it is Acts 20.24. 20, I was reading it in the Living Bible, and I sort of developed my own paraphrase from that. But this really—and I think about this after my wife Katrina's passed away, and I don't have all that many years left. I don't know how many, maybe none, maybe days, maybe months, maybe years, who knows— But the Apostle Paul said, life is worthless to me unless I use it for finishing the work Jesus Christ has given me, the work of proclaiming the message of God's grace and glory. Now that's my paraphrase, but it's become something like my life verse. Life is worthless to me unless I use it for finishing the work the Lord Jesus has assigned me, the work of proclaiming the gospel of God's grace and glory. So we have to finish the work. Fourth, we must proclaim the message with audacity. Look at verse 25. Paul said, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. He is leaving and he thinks that he isn't going to come back into those regions again. Verse 26 Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Now, when he says that he is innocent of the blood of any of you, he is thinking of Ephesians chapter 3, where the Lord told Ezekiel that he had to tell the wicked people, You will surely die. And if Ezekiel didn't tell them and they didn't repent and they did die, the blood would be on his hands. But if he did warn the wicked person and they didn't turn away from their wickedness, then they would, their blood would be on their own hands. It's a very distinct, particularly gripping passage from Ezekiel. And Paul resurrected that thought here in his, in his message to the Ephesian elders. So we must have the courage to share the gospel, And to speak the truth to people, truth to culture, truth to power, we must proclaim this message with audacity, never being intimidated, and always looking for every opportunity. When I was in Wisconsin recently, a man gave me the memoirs of a preacher that I have followed now for over half a century. He had a tremendous impact on my life when I was a young man, and his name was Stuart Briscoe. And Stuart said in his memoirs that one night he was asked to speak to a youth club in England, in Yorkshire. And when he arrived, this group of young people was playing a furious game of basketball. And the youth club organizer hurried over to Stuart and said, I've been in youth group work for many years, and this is the worst group that I've ever had to deal with. And he is the worst of the bunch. And she pointed to a particular young man. Well, Stuart was downhearted at that. He thought of his long trip and his illness, and his homesickness, and he wondered why it even come. But they gathered the people together, and Stuart talked to them. And after his talk, the young man, who was the worst of the bunch, approached him and told him, he said, I'm going to enroll in Bible school. And Stuart didn't believe him, but he did. And the young man's name was Graham Stanford. And he was not a conventional student in Bible school. He didn't study much. He didn't have a great deal of aptitude for books. He loved sports, but he knew how to reach young people. And after he left school, he got a job working on a road repair crew. And every day at lunch, he would gather the men together, especially the younger men, and he would try to witness to them. And the only way that he knew to do it was by reading a sermon from evangelist D. E. L. Moody, So he had a book of Moody sermons, and every day at lunch, he would read, and somehow these fellows would follow along and listen. And one day, Graham forgot his book, and then asked him to preach one of his own sermons. He didn't have a sermon, but he began telling them about, of all things, hell. Graham said they'd never heard about hell before, and he started winning them to Christ. Well, Graham Stamford, in the years since then, went on to speak around the world and to organize sports events that featured the gospel, and he's actually still with it. He has had a phenomenal ministry. He was the worst of the bunch, and yet in God's eyes, he was the pick of the crop. So we just have to find and take every opportunity we can to proclaim the gospel with audacity. And fifthly, we must guard the flock with watchfulness. So verse 28 Keep watch over yourselves, and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Now, I don't have time to deal with this at length, but the Apostle Paul was telling these leaders that false philosophies and heretical teachers were going to show up everywhere, and one of the jobs of Christian workers is to evaluate these things and to protect the flock and to teach against heresy, and to guard them, and to warn them. And verse 28 has been a great help to me for many years. It says in the older versions, Take heed to yourself and to all of the flock over which I have made you overseers. Notice the order there. We've got to take heed to ourselves and then to the flock. There is a sense of sanctified selfishness here. And maybe that isn't the best phrase to use. But the idea is that if you don't take care of yourself, you cannot take care of others. And I've had to slowly learn that I had to take care of myself so that I could take care of others, take heed to yourself, and to all of the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, very quickly, sixth, we must depend on God, verse 32, now I commit you. "...to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified." The Apostle Paul had to leave the Ephesians. He wasn't going to be able to come back to Ephesus. He didn't know if he would be able to have any further influence on them. So what could he do? He simply had to turn them over to the Lord and to trust God with them. I commit you to God." and the word of his grace that can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. To commit something to someone means that we entrust it to them. So what is there in your life that needs to be entrusted to the Lord? Who is there in your life that needs to be entrusted to the Lord? We are able to do very little on our own, but when the Lord works through us, and then whether we see the results or not, we commit our work to the Lord, he is able to build up people and to give them an inheritance among those who are being sanctified in a way that would absolutely stun us and will stun us when we get to heaven. In Second Timothy, the apostle Paul said, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him against that day. And finally, strive for generosity. The Apostle Paul said in verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. He was in a lot of nice homes, but he didn't covet it. He said, you know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself who said, And now he gives us a quotation from Jesus that is not in the Gospels. It is more blessed to give than to receive. So as we go about our work, we must never forget the aspect of generosity and meeting the physical or the financial or the very real needs of people. That was always a component of the work of the Apostle Paul, and it should be to us. And so it wraps up in verse 36 when Paul had finished speaking he knelt down with all of them and prayed and they all wept as they embraced him and they kissed him what grieved them most with his statement that he would never see that they would never see his face again this was a sorrowful parting there was a lot of tears the emotions here I've been in a few occasions where someone was saying goodbye and The tears flowed so freely nobody was ashamed of it, and that was the way it was here. And they accompanied him to the ship and watched until he sailed out of sight. So here are the seven lessons that I have pulled out for my own purposes from Paul's message to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Serve God with emotion. Preach with thoroughness finish the work assigned to you, proclaim the truth with audacity, guard the flock with watchfulness, depend on God for results, and all along the way, strive for generosity. Well, I'm going to leave it at that. After all, I've taken 3,300 words to say what the Apostle Paul said in 400. Thank you for joining me today on this podcast. It was produced by Clearly Media and by Joshua Rowe and his team there, including my grandson, Elijah, who provides the theme music. Please check my website, Robert J. Morgan, for all of the resources we have, including our newest books, A song in my heart, great is thy faithfulness. The Jordan River rules, and God works everything together for good. And may the Lord richly bless you until we meet again.